All right, so we're looking at um, question one still of the Westminster Larger Catechism. And we started off looking last week at really what this is talking about, largely the meaning of life, the purpose or design for human existence, you could say. And we looked at some wrong answers last week, so we're going to be looking at right answers this week. What does, it mean, what does it mean to actually glorify God and fully enjoy him forever? And so maybe the question we could phrase it, we're asking how can I... Glorify God and enjoy him forever. If that's a purpose for our existence, we want to talk about how to actually do that. So uh, before we jump in, let's ask God's help as we look into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for light and direction and that you have not created us for a meaningless existence, but you have created us for yourself. And we can have such delight in you, such rest in you, and so much freedom in living the way you've designed us to live. So help us uh, tune our minds and hearts to uh, the summary of the teachings of your word, and that you would encourage us as we consider these things this morning, and that this would all be for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask. Amen. All right, so we'll look at this in its constituent parts. So if we want to find out first... We want to glorify and enjoy who? God, okay? This is all with reference to God. Our purpose for living is found with reference to our creator. And this is not just the, a generic God. No, it's the one true and living God. The God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's only with reference to the true God that our life finds full purpose. No false God will do. And if we're considering glorifying God. Uh, this word I find often comes, becomes kind of nebulous to us. It's kind of uh, a catch-all. How do we glorify God? Well, let's consider this in its parts. So the word glorify, right? It has that phi suffix, and that phi suffix means generally to make or cause to be or to render. Okay, so if we considered that to beautify something, to make it more beautiful, to diversify something, make it more diverse, to intensify, to make more intense. So if we come to glorify, then we're thinking of making more glorious, okay? To be made more glorious, and glory there would be of exalted excellence and splendor, okay? More exalted in excellence and splendor. But if you're thinking, you're like, well, we can't make God any more glorious than he already is, right? We can't add to his glory. So what are we talking about when we're saying glorifying God? We're not making him any more excellent than he already is. He's perfect in his excellency. And so what's really interesting about this idea of glorifying God then is that it's with reference to all of us. We don't make God more glorious in himself, but we make God more glorious in the eyes of his creation in this world. You might think about this uh, through this example of, if you say had a piece of art, uh, a painting perhaps, and maybe you're like me and paintings don't generally do much for you. You're like, okay, it's a painting, cool. But if you maybe got one of those like audio tours in a museum or had someone that knew what they were talking about, to then talk about the painting and be like, but like, look at how there's this cross hatch something here, this technique, and look at just how the, this character's eyes are doing this, and wow, it draws you in. And after listening for a while, you start to think, huh, wow, that actually is really interesting. Um, I remember last summer, I was at my mother-in-law 
sister-in-laws, and um, someone asked her about a painting she had on the wall, and she started talking about why it was her favorite painting and just what it meant to her. And I thought, wow. And then every other time I saw that painting, I'm like, huh, there's a depth there that I didn't know. And so in that sense, the painting is beautified, not in and of itself, it hasn't changed, but it's been made more beautiful to me. I more appreciate uh, the design of the creator of the art. And so that's part of this idea of glorifying God, that his excellence and splendor would be more and more known and understood in the eyes of creation. And so glorifying God is preeminently a communicative activity. It communicates something about God to the world. We're asking, how can we communicate God's supreme worth and perfect beauty in this world? And I want to pose three ways that we glorify God, that we show forth, reflect, or display God's glory in this world. And that is through our existence, through our words, and through our actions. Okay? Simply our, wor- our existence, our words, and our actions. So let's first of all consider, how does our existence glorify God? Well, all of created reality glorifies God. Psalm 19.1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So even just by existing, the heavens, the universe, the trees and flowers, they actually are communicating to us that God is glorious. Just as a beautiful painting would tell us that the person who painted it has some skill, some worth, some value. Just by existing, everything is, in a sense, implicitly communicating that God is amazing. Even the unbeliever, their existence in this world, the, the design with which their bodies and minds have been designed, speaks of a beautiful, brilliant designer. And that's partly why, with all this communication all around us, why it's so, um, so, so terrible that people don't acknowledge the creator of all this. They don't give God the glory, even though his glory is being communicated so clearly in this world. This is what Paul says in Romans 1.20. He says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It's saying it's clear that God is powerful and God in the things that have been made. And so people in this world are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him, that's the idea of glorifying him, or give thanks to him. And so that just increases that struggle that, wow, everything is declaring God's glory. And so to not praise him for that glory is just a terrible state fallen humanity has come to, even though all the world by existence glorifies God. That's an indirect glorification. But we can also consider a more direct glorification, uh, which is glorifying God in our words. Our words are probably the most uh, simple, clear, and direct way that we glorify God in this world, particularly through our praises and thanksgivings. Praise and thanksgiving is essential. Um, If you wanted to know, in a sense, the quickest way you would know how 
I would say love and esteem my wife would be if you didn't know us very well and we were sitting around and I just started talking, saying, oh, my wife is so awesome. She means so much to me. She's so good to me. She's so lovely and beautiful and just treats me so well, so kind and gracious. Your esteem for her would increase. You'd say, wow, you really value your wife. She must be really great. The words are the quickest way and most direct way to communicate value. And so when we consider that in our Christian life, the way we speak of God and praise and thanks God is, you could argue, the most single defining characteristic of a Christian. Our morality can often be copied by people that don't share our religious views. Um, Our way of existence in this world, enjoying things. But the one thing that the unbeliever never does is actually give the true living God praise. They might have a thankful heart to something nebulous in the universe, but to actually praise God, that's one of the most fundamental actions that sets believers apart from unbelievers. Um, Even when we fall short in how we live, by our words we're communicating something that God is glorious, and we've seen him and acknowledged him and recognized that he is most glorious in everything. And not just praising some God, but Jehovah, the true God, and the living God. So part of how we glorify God is in our praises and thanksgivings. And remember, if glorifying is not just um, to God himself, right? We can praise God in our personal prayers and we're speaking to him, right? Just like I could compliment my wife when it's in private, just her and I. But it's a different thing to actually do it before other people, right? You know, if your spouse compliments you in front of a group of friends, that kind of has a different meaning to you than if it's in private, right? Both are valuable. And that's one reason why our corporate worship is so important, because that is one of the only times that we actually verbally praise and declare God's glory in front of other people. And so it actually sets it apart qualitatively. It is qualitatively different than your personal worship. Praising God just in your room is different than praising God in front of the family of God. Because when we are praising in church, we are communicating how valuable God is to one another. And so you could actually test the quality of your praise in this in a sense. And I know personalities are different, but if all the eyes of the church were on you as you were praising and worshiping, Would the way you worship communicate anything of the worth of God? Is there any excitement there, any passion, any love? It'll be seen, some might more uh, subtly than others, but our praises, our singing, our um, vigor as we worship, it ought to, that is communicating how valuable we think God is. Because when we really admire him and value him, that's going to affect uh, the way we sing and speak of him. And this is something God really cares about. Psalm 50, 23, God tells us, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. So he's saying more than sacrificing a costly ox or bull or goat, something that really was true economic value being sacrificed. He says, thanksgiving is the sacrifice that glorifies me, shows how glorious I am. And so really this posture of humble gratitude and praise is the baseline level at which we should be living our Christian life at all times. Um, Any comments, questions, or thoughts so far?
No? All right. Okay, so we were looking at glorifying God in our existence and our words. Now let's consider glorifying God in our actions and lifestyle choices. This is going to be um, a more indirect way to glorify God, but um, though more indirect, it is potentially more true and substantive. Here's what I mean. Um, again, if you're thinking of me and my wife, you just met us, I was praising her. You might think, oh, wow, that's great. But your love for her will probably most be shown long-term as I watch, do you actually sacrifice for her? Do you actually consider her interests before your own? Are you actually living as we're watching in a way that shows that she's actually valuable to you, right? That, the, that love, the words are cheap. The deeds would actually show it, whether you're really in everything you're doing considering her interests. And so it is with God. We can talk about how great God is, uh, our praise of him. But as people watch our lives, our lives will truly reflect the amount to which we are actually considering God in all our actions. And so we could also think that then this idea of glorifying God is synonymous with the idea of pleasing God. Glorifying him is what happens to the creation. Pleasing him is what God receives in and of himself. And so if we want to glorify God in our actions, we need to follow Paul's advice in Ephesians 5.10, where he tells us to try and find out what pleases the Lord. This is something we're called to actively seek out and discern. Try and find out what pleases the Lord. And that is pleasing God, living according to his words, keeping his commands, following his laws. And amazingly, God hasn't kept us in the dark about this. We don't have to try to guess what God's preferences are because he's shown us what we need to know in his word. And so there's a sense just as I honor my wife when I seek to live according to her preferences, what she has told me her desires are. So we glorify God when we seek to follow his precepts and to please him in what we do. And this is, uh, sure, yeah, Andrew. Um, how is it that we, we can't add glory to God, but we can add pleasure to God? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think there's, um, yeah, I don't want to jump ahead too much in the lessons, but uh, sometimes we think of it, uh, the term gets thrown around anthropomorphizing God, that we speak of God in human terms because that's kind of the only way we can do so. So when we speak of God in the Bible being grieved or sorrowful, we have to recognize that though that's a true response, it's not meaning that his total perfect blessedness in and of himself is getting detracted from. Just as when we please God, it's not as though his perfect happiness is being added to in any way. But there's a sense in which it's like a relational pleasing, a relational grieving, but it's not affecting his actual emotional state to, to use a human term that doesn't really apply to God. Does, does that make sense? Like there's, um, there's times when I think your children could do something that displeases you, but doesn't actually affect your composure or control, right? Like 
it didn't, it didn't actually affect you negatively and make you suffer that they did that thing, but it's, it's against your will. And so because it's against your will, it's a displeasure. Or when you see them walking in accordance with your will, that, does, uh, that is a delighting kind of thing. That's kind of the best I think I can do with that for now. Anyways, good, good, good question. Um, but yeah, I would say just, it's with reference to our relationship is a good way to think about it. Um, and this is really at the heart of the concept of the fear of the Lord. Uh, there's a lot of unhelpful ways of thinking about the fear of the Lord. But when you take all the teaching of the fear of the Lord, the idea of fearing God is simply this. It's factoring God into every thought and situation. It's living in the reality of God. It's living with an awareness that God exists and God is present. Okay, that's really what the idea of the fear of the Lord is, living with a desire to please him. Um, that is, uh, it's taking thought of God. Uh, if you were, say, making a meal for maybe one of your family, like a, some family that you knew you had over, when you're making the meal, you don't just make the meal that you would want to eat best, right? You take into consideration the needs and preferences of the others, right? So when I'm cooking for my relatives, I remember, oh, right, Josiah can't eat dairy or nuts. And, oh, yeah, Sean doesn't like that particular vegetable. Um, and therefore, I'm going to keep all these things in mind while I'm doing this work. And that's kind of what fearing God is, glorifying him in our actions. It's keeping God in mind in everything we do. How would it please God how I spend my money? How will God be pleased in the way I raise my children? How will God be pleased in the way I eat this meal? Our culture talks about this idea of mindfulness all the time, right? Living mindfully. Christian mindfulness might just simply be having a mind full of God. That God is always on my mind. Just wait, will this please him? Will this please him? And to live that way, to live glorifying God in our actions, taking him into account, factoring him, is just a wonderful way to live. That is how we glorify God in our actions, living according to his commands. Uh, and, any other thoughts or questions? And there's also a further component of glorifying God in our actions that is our witness. When we live in this way, it does declare before the watching world that God is glorious, that he is worthwhile. And so when other people see that you spend your money in a way that shows that money is not your treasure, but God is your treasure, that glorifies God. When you raise your children in a way that shows that um, their worldly success is not your ultimate treasure, but spiritual success, that glorifies God. Our actions show where our values lie. And there can be a domino effect here. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12 says this. Peter writing to the church. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's saying there's an effect that when you glorify God um, by abstaining from fleshly passions, abstaining from those sins, and you keep your conduct in this world honorable, that is glorifying God such that when people 
speak against you as evildoers because you don't affirm what they affirm. You don't accept the things that they accept. They might call you hateful or close-minded or a bigot. Though they might ascribe those to you, they can't deny that you live in a way that is admirable, filled with kindness and love and care for the ways of God. That even though they want to hate you, they find it hard to because your conduct is upright. And when you glorify God this way, it says that the effect can often be that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That means ultimately come to find salvation themselves and join the body of those who glorify God. Um, just, yeah, a wonderful domino effect of glorifying God in this world. And we want to consider this in our whole lives, right? It's not just our worship, not just the big things, but down to the smallest things. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, right? There's nothing in our life outside of the purview of being controlled by the principles of God's word. Everything can be done to the glory of God. Uh, you might want to look it up, but uh, John Piper has a famous article. I think it's called How to Drink a Cup of Orange Juice to the Glory of God. Uh, How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. And so we can glorify God in our words, in our deeds, and by our very existence. Um, any other thoughts, comments, questions before we look at enjoying God? Already. So if the confession just stopped here, that says the goal of life is to glorify God, we might get easily um, brought into that idea of like, this is just duty and drudgery. I just keep the rules and that's all I do is keep the rules. But no, it goes more. It's not just to glorify God, but also to enjoy God. So if we can think of glorifying God as in a sense, what we do that radiates outwards into the world, Enjoying God is what we receive in and of ourselves. Enjoyment. Joy. And this enjoyment of God is not just mere emotion, but it's finding contentment, pleasure, and delight in God and everything we have in him. Or as one commentator said, it is to rest in him and to delight in him as our greatest happiness and the source of all that is good in our life and destiny. And what's important to recognize here is that enjoying God is not um, a separate category from glorifying God. So that we focus on, I need to do some glorifying things, and then I need to do some enjoying things. They're actually reciprocal in every action. The things we do that glorify God is the way we enjoy God. Um, the enjoyment and the glorification are always hand in hand. They're, they're like a two-way street. And if we consider this then, we can look at enjoying God in these same three categories we looked at glorifying God, in our existence, in our words, and in our actions. And the things we enjoy of God in each of these respectively is that we enjoy his gifts, we enjoy his presence, and we enjoy his likeness. Each of these categories have a different way that we enjoy God. So first, enjoying God in our existence. And this is enjoying his gifts. So when we live in this world and exist in it, every single thing is a gift from God. Every good thing, James says, comes from above the father of lights. And so every taste of good food, every good conversation, every breath of air, all these things are a gift that we enjoy. And when we enjoy the gifts, 
We are enjoying something of God, a piece of God, a reflection of God that's come to us. And again, when we consider that unbelievers in this world do enjoy God in the way they enjoy his gifts. And so again, doubly without excuse for the fact that they're not giving him thanks and praise for all of this. Um, And it is good and it is right to enjoy God through his gifts. 1 Timothy 5.17 says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And I do think there's been a slightly off idea that kind of creeps in, and I think it comes from a misinterpretation of Augustine, but this idea that we shouldn't really enjoy anything in this life um, unless it's like a necessity or is to our spiritual advantage. So if you're partaking of these sorts of sports or entertainments, like you've It only is really valuable if you can find a way to make it godly or explicitly Christian. And that there's um, a disposition against enjoying things just for the enjoyment's sake. Okay, so if you think of parents and children, you, you have different purposes in their gifts, right? Sometimes you want to give them presents that are educational, right? Like you care that this game is going to be educational, There's other things you might want to give them with a relational emphasis. Oh, this would be a fun thing that we would be able to do together, and that'll help build our relationship, right? So you have educational gifts, relational gifts, but sometimes you just want to give your child a present that's just for their enjoyment, just for their pleasure. And so I think we can map those same things onto our Christian life. God gives us some gifts that help us grow in our relationship with him. He gives us some things that we can use to grow in our knowledge of him. But it's also good and fine that God gives us some things that we can just enjoy for the sake of enjoyment and just delight in that goodness. And as parents, you know that when you see your child enjoying something you've given them um, in, in the way you've given it to them to enjoy, that delights your heart because you are the one that chose to give that gift. And the fact that they're just enjoying it glorifies you. Okay, so we are allowed to enjoy God's gifts just for enjoyment's sake. And again, everything in balance and moderation. And this is um, the purpose in the book of Ecclesiastes. It just tells us, There's so many things people strive for and are ambitious about and strive to obtain, but the way to live is really just to enjoy your work, to enjoy your spouse and family, and to enjoy food and drink. And when you live in the present, enjoying everything as a gift from God, it frees you from that need to try to make something of yourself, that your life will be found in making a name for yourself, being successful. Ecclesiastes says, you know, if that comes, that's from God, use it, steward it. But if you're striving for some attainment in the future that will bring you enjoyment, that's not the way to live. It's to find the enjoyment in the gifts God has given every day and be faithful in them. Uh, this is enjoying God really by our existence. Okay, you guys following? Any questions on that? Okay, so first by existence, second, enjoying God in our words. Okay, this might seem slightly counterintuitive at first, but um, I think it actually makes sense. How do we enjoy God in our praise and worship? So this is, I'm going to call enjoying God's presence. C.S. Lewis remarked in his Reflections on the Psalms that praise completes enjoyment. It's all, it's like, you know how, um, if you're eating something yummy, the, the, the swallowing act 
you kind of taste it in a different way. It kind of like completes the bite. Same with praise. So if you've uh, just eaten a really good meal, you want to say to everybody, oh, wasn't that so good? It's like, oh man, that was the most delicious thing I've ever had. And it's actually that talking about it that kind of brings the experience to a pinnacle. Or, or I remember one time my sister and I went on this roller coaster and uh, it was one of the first ones we ever went on. And when we got off, we just couldn't stop talking about it. That was so much fun. That was so crazy. Can you believe it? And that actually kept up, in a sense, the enjoyment. And even psychologists have remarked how things like vacations and experiences, you actually derive the most enjoyment in the conscious reflection upon those experiences for the rest of your life. Which is why they say, for bang for your buck, experiences bring you far more joy than things. Because actually the reflection on the experience for the rest of your life uh, brings a sense of satisfaction. Um, that's why we enjoy reminiscing about the great times in the past. Because we actually get to continue to enjoy them through the way we praise them. And so with God, when we've take all, taken all this experience of life, all the good things we've enjoyed... Uh, we can even think of collecting everything, gathering up everything of the week, bringing it into our worship service, and getting to praise and thank God for all his goodness towards us in this world, but also in Christ and through the Spirit. This is why Sunday worship should be the pinnacle of our week. We're gathering all our enjoyments and bringing them to God and completing that enjoyment in a shower of praise and delight. And we can experience and enjoy God's presence in worship. And it's not just through uh, our singing of praises, but all our aspects of worship have the opportunity to enjoy God's presence. As we meditate and reflect on his word, as we pray to him, the sense of his presence can bring different kinds of enjoyment to us. It can bring us a sense of the Father's love, a sense of peace in our troubled consciences through the work of Christ, a sense of rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, or a sense of hope of eternal life. And as we struggle with various negative emotions throughout the week, God's presence in many ways is the main thing that can work to alleviate them, whether that's a sense of guilt or shame, sadness, fear, anxiety, despair, bitterness, resentment. God's presence makes a difference in all of these. Praise often lifts up our perspective away from the things of this earth and allows us to gain peace um, with the presence of God with us as we turn our attention to him. And often in our human relationships, almost usually the, the times you are most enjoying your friends or your spouse is when you're talking together. You're communicating one with another and you just think, ah, oh, this night was so great, just enjoying each other. Uh, so our communication with God, praying, receiving from his word, is a way to enjoy his presence. And it actually doesn't even need to be communicative necessarily. right? Have you ever had that experience where you're just sitting in the living room and maybe your child or uh, spouse or parent is there, and you just look over and you don't even say anything, but you just see their face and you just have a contentment in your heart that just they love you, you love them, and it's just wonderful to be together. Sometimes that's what it is like with God, like Psalm 46.10 says, where we can just be still and know that God is God and that he is our God. Just the fact of our relationship with him is an enjoyable aspect of our life.
not even necessarily interacting, just resting in his presence. And that's in what I'm calling enjoying God in our words. So, right, so we can see that the praise that glorifies him is also a way we enjoy him. The, the existence that glorifies him is also an existence that enjoys him. And lastly, just as our actions that glorify him also become actions in which we enjoy him. And again, there's, a, I think, a, a way to think about this. But uh, first, any questions from that last section? Enjoying God in worship. Okay, so if we enjoy God's gifts by our existence, we enjoy God's presence in our worship, we enjoy God's likeness in our actions and obedience. So God, in and of himself, is perfectly blessed and holy. We can think God's 100%. There's no lack. And so God's creation was good. It was whole. And what sin does, and sin did when it entered the world, is it corrupted it, started eroding that goodness. Again, Augustine was one of the first to point out that sin and evil are actually not existing things in and of themselves. They are actually deprivations of the good. The things we experience as evil and suffering in our life are corrosions from the goodness God intended in the world. And so, in a sense, seeking holiness which is to be like God, is seeking wholeness. It's seeking to, to buff out those corrosions and be remade in the likeness of Christ. And even though in this world, we can never ex- escape these corrosive effects of sin. Uh, this world, until Christ returns, is always going to be corrupted, so we will always have and experience um, seemingly uh, stupid suffering that makes no sense, that comes out of nowhere. That's what life in a fallen world means. But as we learn to walk in God's ways, according to his commands, we will suffer at least less stupidly due to our own sins and um, selfishnesses, right? When we decide I'm going to walk my way instead of God's way, that always leads to our own hurt. And this world is hard enough and bad enough as it is without us compounding our suffering by walking stubbornly according to our own lustful desires and our own selfish ways. And so if we are to live in a way that enjoys God, the more we are living in accordance with God's likenesses, that is, accordance with his commands, the things that are reflections of his character, we find joy in that likeness to God because we are walking in a less corrupted and corroded way of life. Because living according to God's commands is the most enjoyable way to live. If you want to have the best life possible, the most happy life possible, you want to obey God as much as possible. That is the way to live. Uh, David says in Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David's goal was to attain the likeness of God, and that's what would ultimately satisfy his soul. And so we can say there's a technique to the Christian life. There's a technique to living, and the technique is living according to God's commands and statutes, if we want to have the greatest joy. Okay, think about this in terms of um, whatever hobby you might have pursued, maybe music, maybe sports. One of the first things you have to do is start learning the technique, right? So if you're playing piano, you want to have uh, your fingers slightly rounded, not flat. 
and you need to learn the, the correct fingering when your thumb passes underneath and goes up so that once you've learned the technique, you can have greater freedom to create greater beauty. And we know if you've learned, say, a wrong technique, it's hard to correct, right? Like for years, I remember I was holding a ping pong paddle the wrong way, and I was doing pretty good with it, but I knew I was hampered because I hadn't got the right grip. So when I was forced to switch to the right grip, I was way worse for a while, but eventually I was able to go past where I was before because I was doing things right. Uh, I had another, I had a piano student one time who had taught himself to play from like a flashing light keyboard, but he only played with like three fingers, like kind of like this. And it was so hard to teach him how to use his thumbs, but I'm like, if you can use your thumbs, you'll be able to do so much better. And that's sort of what the Christian life is like. As we see God's command sometimes as restrictive, why can't I do that pleasurable thing those in the world are doing? Why would you have marriage be like this? Why would you have me give and live like this? The purpose of all God's commands are to teach us, in a sense, those rudimentary techniques that if we truly imbibe them, we will be able to play the most beautiful Ravel or the Rachmaninoff only once we've mastered these techniques. So what seem like constraints in the eyes of the world are actually the constraints that give us liberty and freedom to live beautiful lives. That's what freedom in God's world is. It's freedom to live beautifully which is living in accordance with God's commands. And that's the way to enjoy life, to enjoy things by living according to the way God's given us. Um, any, any thoughts on that before we move to the last little section? Or questions? Alrighty, and so glorifying God, fully enjoying God is the purpose of our existence. And the answer finishes that we are to do this forever. Because you see, glorifying and enjoying God is not just the purpose of our short life on earth. This is also the purpose of our eternal life in heaven. And it's in the new heavens and the new earth when God has remade all things that then we will be able to perfectly enjoy him, perfectly glorify him by our existence, by our praises forever, by our perfect obedience forever, and to fully enjoy God's gifts forever, all the gifts that God has to give us in store, to fully enjoy God's presence, no, no veil, no nothing separating us from Christ and his perfect presence in us in heaven. Won't that be amazing, the presence of Christ? Uh, Julie and I were flying back from Boston yesterday visiting family, and it was a gray, just very terrible day. But then we broke through the clouds, and it was so bright, and the clouds below us were just like a shining sea. I'm like, this looks like heaven. But I thought that picture of we're often still so um, shaded from the presence of Christ just from the clouds of our own lives. But heaven will be that point where we break through and exist in that perfect, warm light of the sun forever. Won't that be amazing? And not only to enjoy Christ's presence forever, but to fulfill David's desire and awake in the new world in the likeness of Christ. No more corruption, no more corrosion, no more sin, but to live with him forever in that. We will enjoy God and glorify him forever, and we, but we get to start now. We get to make at least a few first initial steps in that process 
a process which will continue into eternity. So we can bring eternity into now as we live to glorify and enjoy God in our existence, in our words, and in our actions. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are all glorious, and you have made a beautiful, glorious world, beautiful creation. And though, Lord, it's been corrupted by sin, yet there are still so many ways that we get to enjoy your gifts. And we thank you for those of us that believe in you, that you've brought us out of darkness into light and shown us the way to live. And so we do ask the help of your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and to stir up our hearts that we would intentionally live every day in recognition of your great gifts, giving you praise and thanksgiving for your works of creation, redemption, and sanctification, and that we would more and more obey you, bringing our lives into alignment with the rudiments of Christianity and the teachings of your word, that we might glorify and enjoy you and that others might see, that they might ask the hope and come to glorify you on the day of visitation. And help us especially as we come into your corporate worship, that we will praise you and glorify you to one another by how we engage, listen, sing, and pray. We pray all this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and coming with confidence that we have before your throne through his name. And we pray these things. Amen.